We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and just verses 16 and 17 today. This is God's holy word as he inspired Paul to write. And so, as Paul received it and wrote it infallibly, it is without error, for God can make no errors. So we read God's inerrant holy word, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Last Sabbath, we heard Paul's exhortation that uh, Christians must build on the foundation of salvation in Christ things that will last into the world to come. He warned that we could build things that would not last on that foundation. So it's possible to be saved, to have the foundation of salvation, but to be building things in our lives that are really not going to have any eternal value. And we saw how that could entail too much concentration on the things of this world. Paul said, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the one who believes the gospel will certainly be saved. But if he is not invested in eternal things beyond that, he's going to be saved, but he'll be like somebody who survived a house fire. He still has his life, but he's lost all of his possessions. And so if we invest in the things of this world too much, that, that uh, old saying, you can't take it with you, applies. Right? You, you can't take all of your earthly things with you into the kingdom. What will you be... Uh, receiving in the kingdom? What are you investing in now? That was part of Paul's question for us last time. Well, in today's scripture, Paul adds another warning. As he warned about being too invested in earthly things, he now adds another warning on top of that. He warns against defiling the temple of God. And in context, we see that a major concern of Paul's, of course, is the division that has existed in the Corinthian church as they've divided into petty factions. And this factionalization of the congregation has stemmed from a concentration on earthly concerns like prestige and status. Who's your favorite teacher and why? And what does that say about you and your earthly status? This earthly concentration has really been self-feeding. They concern themselves so much, in fact too much, with earthly things 
And that kept them focused on earthly things, resulting in more concentration on, you guessed it, earthly things. So Paul warns now that this undue concern for the earthly and neglect of the spiritual matters can also result in outright corruption of the church, in defiling of God's people. In verses verses 16 and 17, Paul teaches several things we're going to see here. Number one, Christians are the temple of God. Secondly, the Spirit of God dwells in that temple. Third, therefore, God's zeal for his temple is a zeal for believers. And fourth, Christians as the temple of God are therefore holy. So first of all, let's note Christians are the temple of God. Paul writes, do you not know that you are the temple of God? In 2 Samuel 7, David expresses his desire to build a house for the Lord. The Lord's answer through the prophet Nathan included these words. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers... I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Interestingly, we find in that passage there's actually a play on words going on. David speaks of a house that he wants to build for God, a physical structure, a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says David's son is going to build a house for him. Now, in the most immediate sense, that referred to King Solomon, who would come after David, and he would build a temple in Jerusalem. We read earlier from 1 Kings 8 about the dedication of that temple. But prior to verses 12 and 13, which we just read, verse 11, in that verse, Nathan the prophet said, Also the Lord tells you, that he will make you a house. So David said, I want to make a house for God. Nathan said, that sounds like a good idea. And Nathan was not a false prophet when he said that. He was just giving his human opinion. If he had said, thus says the Lord, that's a good idea, uh, then God said no, that would have proved that that Nathan was a false prophet. So we have to be very cautious of those people, not who make mistakes occasionally when they're preaching the word of God, but uh, people who say, here's what God says through me, a prophet. And then, of course, if they're not 100% correct, which they never are, uh, they're actually, according to God's word, a false prophet. Nathan uh, said, in his opinion, it sounded like a good idea, but then God spoke to Nathan, and so when, when Nathan comes back to David, he says, thus says the Lord, here's what God actually says, I don't want you to do that. But David had this notion that he would build a house for the Lord, a temple in Jerusalem. And Nathan said, also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And then he goes on to state the Lord's word about giving David a son to reign in his place. And so he's using house in two different ways here. When God said he's going to give David a house, he didn't mean I'm going to build a structure that you can live in. He meant to give him a family. In verse 16, God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the Lord is speaking there not of a a home to live in, but of a house as in a dynasty, a family line descended from David. 
the house of David, as it would come to be called. Ultimately, the son of David, who establishes the throne of David forever, is Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives a house, a family. He is the one who builds the true house of the Lord. Solomon built an earthly representation of that house. But Jesus doesn't give us a house, a building made with hands, but a family line for God. Now figuratively, that family, that house of the Lord is spoken of as a temple in in terms of a physical structure. We find this in many places in Scripture, Ephesians 2, 19-22. Paul was uh, uses both the imagery of family and that of the temple interchangeably for the church. He also uses the imagery of kingdom and citizenship. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there's household language. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now there's physical structure language. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So there God's people are spoken of as being figuratively a temple, a physical structure that God dwells in. Well, you'll notice in that those few verses there, just the uh, both the imagery of family and of a building, of a temple. Just as the Lord uses in 2 Samuel 7, uses the word house to mean both things. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 5, you also, as he's talking to Christians here, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So believers are like stones in a spiritual house, in a temple. We should note that while later, In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul will speak of each individual believer as being a temple, or your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here he speaks of all Christians collectively. He's speaking of the church being the temple of God. So not a building again, but the people of God. In verse 16, you'll notice the the use, if that's a a word, uh, the, the use of the word you more than once. And those are actually plural. Of course, uh, you is already plural in English. We, we use the plural version. We dropped the singular the second person uh, centuries ago in our common usage in English. Uh, so I always like to tell my friends from south of the Mason-Dixon line, you don't have to say y'all. It's, we're all, all, you is already plural. Um, but if you have a King James Version, uh, you'll notice that the word that appears there is ye, it's the second person plural, if it were singular it would be thou. You, plural, all of you believers, are the temple of God, Paul is saying. One implication of that fact, by the way, is that when we sing the Psalms of Zion, and the temple, we're singing now about the church. Christians are the temple of God. Which brings us to point number two. The Spirit of God dwells in that temple. 
Now these are reciprocating ideas. They feed each other, right? Why are God's people the temple of God? Because the Spirit dwells in them. Uh, Why can we call it the temple? Because the Spirit's there, right? The Spirit is there. Why does He dwell there? Because it's the temple. Verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The two ideas are integrally linked, right? The temple is God's dwelling place, therefore the place God dwells is His temple. The Spirit of God dwells in the church. This is true of individual believers, we know. As Paul will say in chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so that has implications, as we'll see, Lord willing, when we get there, uh, for how we use our bodies, what we do with our bodies. <clears throat> Jesus told his disciples, John fourteen twenty three, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God dwelling with his people. This happens by the Holy Spirit, John 14, 16, and 17. And I will pray the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Because each believer is indwelt then by the Holy Spirit, we can easily see how collectively the church coming together is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you, plural, Paul says here. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he'll say, you are, you again plural, the church, you are the temple of the living God. The church, therefore, is the fulfillment of several Old Testament promises for God to dwell with his people. Leviticus 26.12, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This was a promise to the Old Testament Israel and has an even greater fulfillment in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 32.38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37.27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. Tabernacle, a dwelling place. Think of that in light of the fact that in John 1, 14, we're told literally when we read the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that's actually the, the verb version of the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. The Spirit of God dwells in the church, in the temple of God. And since the church is the temple of the Lord, number three, God's zeal for his temple, then, is a zeal for believers. The first part of verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's a very stern warning. And think of the issue at stake here as the church is divided in Corinth. Paul saying, you're, you're coming so close to defiling the temple, what do you think God's going to do to you if you defile his temple? Words translated there as defile and destroy are actually the same verb in the Greek. The harm that some would seek to bring to God's church, God will pour out on them. Think of how God reacted in the Old Testament when people messed with seemingly minute details of the worship in the tabernacle, that's the portable temple, or the temple itself 
in Jerusalem. And here we're just talking about the earthly representation of God's holy temple. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So this is what God thinks when we mess with worship or try to make up our own ways to worship him instead of listening to what he has to say about how to approach him. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, 3-7. So they set the ark of God in a new cart. So this is when uh, the ark of the covenant had been sent back uh, to Israel by the Philistines after they captured it in war and plagues came upon them and it stayed for a time in the house of Abinadab and David's wanting to bring it to Jerusalem and they don't follow the biblical prescriptions for how that's to be done carried by the Levites who are told here so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and Uzzah and Ohio, or Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines and sistrums, and on cymbals, as they're engaging in celebration. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. I'll just quickly mention what happened when Wicked kings like Manasseh defiled the temple in Jerusalem, placing idols in the temple. The Lord decreed exile for his people and the destruction of Jerusalem. When for their own wicked reasons, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, that was in God's sovereign plan, it was part of his his chastisement of his people, but the Babylonians didn't wake up one morning and say, what can we do to serve the Lord? I know, he wants us to destroy his temple. Well, they had their own evil reasons for it, and so what did God do? He decreed destruction on Babylon for their destruction of his temple. Jesus showed that same kind of zeal for God's temple in fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 9. It's recorded in John 2, 14 through 17. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's Psalm 69, verse 9. If he had that kind of zeal for the earthly temple, for the types and shadows, how much more zeal must he have for the purity and the well-being of his church, which he says is his temple? 
This is a grave warning to those who would bend the church to serve human whims or to support the sins of a culture. Those who use the pulpits of Christ's church as a platform for their progressive politics and not for the proclamation of the true gospel whereby sinners are saved. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, the Lord's word says. It's a warning to those who would persecute the church as well from the outside, just as to those who would corrupt it from within. God's zeal for his temple is a zeal for believers. Lastly, Paul tells us why God has such zeal for the church. Number four, Christians as the temple of God are therefore holy. The second half of verse 17, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You'll notice that as we read the New King James Version there, temple in the last part of verse 17 is in italics, meaning it's it's not actually there in the Greek. It's, it just says, which you are. The antecedent for that uh, is either holy or temple. It's actually the, the grammar points us more toward it being the temple as being the witch that's being spoken of there. But in either case, it's speaking of the holiness of God's people. In Leviticus 11.44, the Lord commanded his people, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he's fulfilling that in the church. We are his holy people. We are a people set apart from the world and he calls us, of course, to act like it. We're set apart from the world unto God. He said of the earthly temple in 1 Kings 9.3, I have consecrated this house which you have built, talking to Solomon, to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. We need to remember the word forever there in context speaks of uh, really to the end of the age, to the end of that covenant era. God has not forsaken his promises just because he allowed that temple to be destroyed and another one afterwards. But he had zeal, even for that earthly temple. And God has a zeal for the holiness of his people. If he had a zeal for the holiness of that earthly temple, for its, if he consecrated that earthly temple, how much more then must he be zealous for your holiness as a building block of his spiritual temple? How much more zeal must he have for our holiness together, for the sanctity of his church. Christians are, the church is, the temple of God. Do you cherish that? Do you love the church? Do you consider it to be God's holy treasure, to be his temple? Do you delight, as David in Psalm 122 did, to gather with God's people I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That should be our reaction anytime we get to have fellowship, and especially when we get to worship alongside of God's people. I was so delighted to be able to go to the house of the Lord. And it's important that we note, again, that we're not talking here about a physical house. We're not talking about coming to this building or some other building 
to worship except that we're gathering somewhere with God's people. It could be out in the countryside in a conventicle like our spiritual ancestors, the covenanters, were forced to do. It could be in somebody's barn. It could be anywhere. We're not talking about the physical temple. We're very glad that there are, are physical houses that we can meet in in relative comfort. But we're talking here about the people of God. I think it's very telling if you read any of the uh, documents about uh, the church in, say, the days of the Puritans. The Puritans used to keep uh, church minutes, not just of the session meetings and things like that, but even of every meeting of the church. Every time they gathered to worship, they would keep some record often of what happened. And you can read some really uh, fun stories there, like the, the one about a man, I'll go off on a tangent for a minute here, who fell asleep in the pew. And the deacons in those days would keep a stick. And they would usually, on one end of that stick, have a feather. If a woman fell asleep in worship, they could tickle her with the feather. But on the other end, there was either like a ball that they would bop the men with if they fell asleep, or a thorn. And they'd prick them with it and kind of jab them awake. And there was a, a man, and it was recorded in the minutes of a church from New England in colonial days, who was, uh, had his arms stretched out on the back of the pew and had fallen asleep and, and the deacon pricked his hand with that, with that thorn and he jumped up in the middle of church and shouted, Curse ye woodchuck! As he was dreaming about a woodchuck and thought it had bitten him. <clears throat> but another thing that you'll find in those kinds of minutes of churches from those days is the consistent use of the word gathered for uh, what the church was doing. People didn't go to church. The church gathered for worship. Notice that we often avoid sometimes in our uh, announcements, you know, the, in the printed announcements, there's not as much room, and so we might say that prayer meeting is going to be at church, at the church. And everybody understands we mean at the building. But typically in our spoken interchange, we will say things like the church's building or the church building because the building is not the church. The people are the church. And the Spirit of God dwells in that church. And we should love and delight in that church. We should love and delight in God's people when we gather with them. Later in this letter, in chapter 14, verse 25, Paul says, The visitor to the church, to a worship service, who sees right worship going on, should be convinced God is truly among you. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church, especially when we gather for worship that becomes manifest. Delight, therefore, to gather with your sisters and brothers in Christ, and especially to gather for worship. And God's zeal for His temple is a zeal for believers, for the church. He's going to defend the church. He's going to punish those who would corrupt it or destroy it. You, as the temple of God, are holy. You're set apart from the world unto God. And so God commands, act like it. Show the world that you are something different. Have zeal for the church as God has zeal for the church. Especially do not corrupt it. And definitely oppose any efforts to corrupt it. Sadly, one of the ways in which... uh, 
church and many reformed, historically reformed churches has become corrupt is through the use of an accurate principle. An accurate biblical principle tells us that we are reformed and always reforming, or more accurately, always being reformed by God. It's according to the Word of God and by His Spirit. And so we should always be striving to be more biblical. One of the things that appealed to me so much when I was exploring, you know, what, where am I going to go when I was leaving my former denomination, I got to visit the synod meeting of RPCNA. And there was a paper brought before the synod. Here I had just left uh, not too many long, about a month, not too many weeks before that, a month or so before uh, one of my own presbytery meetings where people were pushing for redefining marriage so that you could call it marriage when two men are coming together or two women or something. And, and here I go to visit the RPCNA Synod and I hear the, somebody asking, does the Bible require that we pass a collection plate or is it okay to have a box at the back of this? What, can, what, what meets the biblical requirements of gathering a collection on the first day of the week? They're that concerned with being biblical. A lot of people would think that was just really nitpicky, but the church was just concerned with being faithful to God, and that impressed me. That's reforming according to God's word. Being ready at all times to uh, be changed because we understand something more deeply from God's word. Sadly, there are some who would use that statement, or who do use that statement, reformed and always reforming as just an excuse to be changing all the time. And we have to remember, change and reform are not the same thing. And so often the church gets corrupted, even by the use of a principle that's meant to keep the church from being corrupted. <clears throat> we need to have zeal for the church and its holiness and oppose any efforts to corrupt it. Love it, cherish it, for it is indeed the temple of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love your holy temple. We love the, the church in which your spirit dwells. We ask that you would continue to build us up as a spiritual house. Help us to be fitted as living stones. Cause us to be zealous as you are for its purity, for its well-being. Help us to love one another as Christ has loved us. We pray that you would cause us ever to labor to keep it holy as you are holy. For we pray these things in the name of the one who himself is the true temple and because of whom we are being built into a temple of God in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.